You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. As we come to uh, today's sermon, we come to part two in uh, a two-part series in the book of Habakkuk. Um, it's not clear where the, the, the uh, accent is, uh, whether it's Habakkuk or Habakkuk, uh, so you call it whatever you want to. Um, but uh, I, I was corrected a couple of times, and, and uh, you know what I'm talking about. So um, <laughs> last time what we did as we, we looked at chapter 1 uh, of this, uh, this prophet was that we looked at, at the question of what does it mean to pray in those times where circumstances are challenging us and really inviting us to, to throw it all overboard and, and to just give up on God entirely. And that's certainly what Habakkuk was facing in, in the midst of his situation with the decay of, of his own society and then the threat of the Babylonians coming in and, and one day would actually come in and de- destroy Jerusalem tear down the walls. And and Habakkuk, I think, in his practice, gave us a window into what it means to pray uh, in times such as these of suffering and, and injustice. And the first thing that he taught us was stay engaged. See that, that, that asking the question and continuing to ask the question in relationship with God was exactly what God invites of us in those moments. But secondly, to be willing to move to that wordless place and to wait uh, to stand in the watchtower, to, to station ourselves on the rampart, and to, to wait to see what, what God might answer us. What we talked about last time was that, that faithfulness was not simply about sitting with our hands uh, folded and, and quietly acquiescing to something, but it was about engaging God and holding on to God in, in the midst of, of those questioning periods, that it was about not having a greater amount of something that would lead us not to question faith, but to have faithfulness, which was to hold on in relationship in the midst of those questions. So this week, what we want to look at is chapter 3. And as we look at chapter 3, the question that I want to work with today and, and, and uh, talk about is, how does Habakkuk sustain the weight? There's obviously a great period of time between his complaint and any kind of answer, and we really don't know that much about his life. For all we know, he could have been hauled into exile with the other leaders or even killed in the Babylonian invasion and never have gotten uh, an answer necessarily in his lifetime. But how is it that he sustains the weight? And one of the things we see is that what Habakkuk does is he sustains the weight because he's received the the fruit of joy, and we'll talk a little bit about that today. It's the result of his faithfulness. But before I read the text, let me just give you a couple of windows into understanding it. The thing about a lot of Old Testament literature is that to our 21st century American minds and awarenesses, many of these images make absolutely no sense to us. And so as I read this text, what I want you to know is that what Habakkuk is doing as a poet is really calling his people's attention to a variety of images that point to the the power of God in creation and redemption. And so as you listen to uh, to this text, listen for examples of God's victory over the waters because that's a sign of God's victory over chaos. 
Listen for the way in which Habakkuk speaks of creation images of the waters being separated from the mountains and the way in which God uh, ordained where waters would flow. And listen for the way in which he points to the truth that nations and the power of nations is nothing uh, in light of the power of God. All of those things add up to communicate one simple message that Habakkuk is trying to communicate with his people, and that is that God is God, and that God is not the Babylonian armies. God is not their ability to resist them. God is God and transcends all of those things. So let's look at chapter 3. As I said last week, Habakkuk was a, a court prophet or a court, uh, a temple prophet. That means that he was a, a religious official. So this, this text was actually written for worship. And the way that we know that is the designations at the beginning of it in verse 1 and at the end of it in verse 19. Those are instructions to how it is to be performed and what tune uh, to which it, it, it should be sung. Um, and so Habakkuk obviously wrote this for the, the context of worship in order to confirm these truths in the hearts of his people at, at a regular uh, time of worship. So let's look at Habakkuk 3, beginning at verse 2. O oh Lord, I have heard of your renown, and I stand in awe, O oh Lord, of your work. In our own time, revive it. In our own time, make it known. In wrath, may you remember mercy. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. The brightness was like the sun. Rays came forth from his hand where his power lay hidden. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed close behind. He stopped and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The eternal mountains were shattered. Along his ancient pathways, the everlasting hills sank low. I saw the tents of Kushan under affliction. The tent curtains of the land of Midian trembled. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord, or your anger against the rivers, or your rage against the sea when you drove your horses, your chariots to victory? You brandished your naked bow, sated were the arrows at your command, you split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed, a torrent of water swept by, the deep gave forth its voice. The sun raised high its hands, the moon stood still in its exalted place, at the light of your arrows speeding by, at the gleam of your flashing spear. In fury you trod the earth, in anger you trampled the nations, you came forth to save your people, to save your anointed. You crushed the head of the wicked house, laying it bare from foundation to roof. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter us, gloating as if ready to devour the poor who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the mighty waters. I hear and I tremble within. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones and my steps tremble beneath me. I wait quietly for the day of calamity to come upon the people who attack us. Though the fig tree does not blossom and no fruit is on the vines, though the produce of the olive fails and the fields yield no food, 
though the flock is cut off from the fold and there is no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will exult in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and makes me tread upon the heights. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, take these powerful images of your might, of your lordship over creation, of your power over nations, and use them to remind us that you are God and that we are not. And that because of your place and your position, we are invited to peace. So guide us into that place by your Holy Spirit this day, for we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the things that I have learned in 27 years of pastoral ministry is that when people come to me, they come wanting answers. There's a presenting question in their lives, and they need it answered. And I've also learned in those 27 years that I need to avoid the temptation of rushing to give an answer to the question that's being asked. Because sometimes there's a series of other questions underneath that question that are really more important to get at. And it's the process of sitting with those questions that God actually grows us up and teaches us how to pray. Growth often doesn't come by amassing answers that we can put in a book. Growth comes as we work in relationship with God in the midst of questions. Back in May, Eugene Peterson, who translated the message, who is a a pastor who's had a lot of of input in my life and teaching about pastoral ministry, he was here in our sanctuary addressing uh, a group because he was receiving the Denise Levertov Award from Image Magazine, a a magazine on on the, the arts and faith that is published out of SPU here in Seattle. And they were giving him this award and and... Uh, he was addressing us through this lecture. And at the end of the lecture, we were sitting in awe of, of just the, the, the solidity of this man's relationship with the Lord. And one young woman at one point raised her hand during a question and answer period, and, and she didn't really know how to ask her questions, and so she kept trying different ways to ask it. And she said, you know, how do, she essentially said, how do we get where you are? You know, is there... Is there some discipline that we have to engage? Is there something we can do? Is there some book I can read? Um, is there somebody I need to go see? You know, she kept listing all of these things. You know, what? How do we? How do we grow in our faith? You know, is there is there something I can buy? As she finally said. And everybody in the in the congregation that night chuckled, just like you just chuckled, and. And uh, Eugene Peterson sort of looked at her and, and smiled warmly and, and paused for a minute. And he said, well, y- you sort of have your answer to that question already, don't you? And went on to say, there, there really isn't anything you can buy. There really isn't anything you can do. What there is is a, a relationship that you need to learn about and, and rest in. And, and that happens over time. Sit with the questions, in other words. 
Sit with the questions and, and instead of answers, what you may find at the end of working with those questions in the presence of God is that you may not get answers, but what you get is relationship. And that's enough of an answer. That was certainly Habakkuk's experience. His questions invited him to that wordless place of waiting and continuing to work with the question in the presence of God. And what sustained his weight was not simply the dedication or resolve or the set of disciplines that he used to to gut it out, to hold on more tightly, to, to acquire more faith somehow. That's not what sustained his weight. What sustained his weight in, in the face of not knowing was simply asking himself the question, there's a lot I don't know, but what is it in this intervening time? What is it in this space of waiting that I do know about God and that I can hold on to? What Habakkuk then does is to take us in this book through two sets of assurances about what he does know. And essentially what he does know is, first of all, that evil and injustice are unsustainable. And secondly, that though God may be silent now, he has acted mightily in the past, and it is that past experience of the saving power of God that we hold on to while we're waiting for a new expression of it. Habakkuk comes to us as both a prophet, preacher, and a poet. And he gives us an insight into what it is that sustains the weight. And he comes to us, first of all, as a preacher, as a prophet, and does what prophets do. He proclaims the truth. A prophet in the Old Testament is not necessarily someone who predicts the future. That's what we we think of often when we hear that word. Not at all. Prophets in the Old Testament were preachers who called people's attention to the truth, the truth of the brokenness of society and the truth of the power of God that transcended those things. Prophets were about redirecting people's attention to those things that mattered, and that's exactly what Habakkuk does. And what he does, especially in chapter 2, really throughout the book, but especially in chapter 2, he points again and again to the truth that evil and injustice are ultimately, in God's scheme of things, unsustainable. That the wickedness of Babylon will not have the last words. That their manipulative, powerful, grabbing, power-grabbing ways are not ultimately going to establish them for eternity in a, in a place of ascendancy in the Near East. All throughout chapter 2, then the woes that, that Habakkuk pronounces, he, he points to the various kinds or manifestations of ugliness that the Babylonians are making use of and saying, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. This will not be sustainable. Because ultimately what they were doing was worshiping themselves. And that's the other thing that a prophet does is a prophet uncovers idolatry. It unmasks, a prophet unmasks the idols of, of a particular culture and says, that's what you're worshiping and that's not God. And that's exactly what Habakkuk did. He pointed to the Babylonians and even to his own people and said, the things that you have tried to use to replace God are not powerful enough to do so. You Babylonians can worship your implements of of war and, and power, but ultimately what sustains you in your place is fear, and fear is a not not of a strong enough God to sustain you in power. So as a prophet, 
What he says to his people is, our current situation is not the last word. And though it appears that evil is winning, it will not win. He promises the truth that God is God and that they will see it come to be. That's what he does as a prophet, but he also engages us as a poet, as an artist. And in this wordless space that he finds himself, he resorts to poetry. The, the passage that I just read is a, is a marvelously crafted worship poem that it, that's to be sung in the context of worship. And what Habakkuk does, amazingly, is, is he, he takes his people into that, that place where the, the images that, that he kind of parades before them are designed to produce an affect, a resonance sort of deep within them in that wordless place. He takes images not only from his own tradition, but also from the dominant culture of the day, the Babylonian tradition, and he weaves them all together and he says, all of these things point to the truth that God is powerful and that God has saved and that therefore God will save again. He's an artist who in a time where the bullet points of prose just don't work to bring us assurance, instead goes to poetry and says, let these things serve to to remind you of a truth and to remind you at the the deepest core of, of, of where you live and who you are. That's what poetry does for us. It replaces that sometimes abstract and almost pedantic kind of bullet point prose that that we resort to in order to kind of amass our answers and instead says, no, go to a different place because those words aren't working right now. Recounting those events in a very prosaic style won't help you. What you need to do is connect with the deep resonance of the power of God and that's, that's what he does in that poem. He does it in a song of worship. And he points especially to the images of God as creator and God as redeemer. That God has had the power to, to, to raise up mountains and to divide the seas away from those mountains and to, to channel the rivers through them. That God has had the power to, to ordain the lights that, that govern the day and night. That God sets the boundaries of the oceans. That God is creator. This is who God is. This is how God has acted. Hold on to that truth. But also God is Redeemer. The images in chapter 3 are all about the Exodus. They're all about those images of of the, the plagues that have destroyed Egypt, of the escape from Egypt, of the crossing of the Red Sea, of the inundation of Pharaoh's armies under the waters of the Red Sea. All of those poetic images are there that bring associations to the minds of the people about the wonders of God's salvation in their history that he gathered them together, that he sent them out, that he protected them, that he he guided them through their wilderness wandering. That he's creator and redeemer. That's what Habakkuk wants his people to know. And that marvelous poem, that song of worship, is bracketed by two prayers that I want to call our attention to. First of all, in the second verse, when he says... In our own time, I, you know, I stand in awe of your work, O Lord. In our own time, revive it. In our own time, make it known. In wrath, in this time of difficulty, remember your mercy. That's the way he begins the song and then he ends it with his own prayer of moving to that watchtower again. 
I hear and I tremble within. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones and my steps tremble beneath me. In other words, things aren't good. Nothing has been resolved. So I will quietly wait for the day of calamity to come upon the people who attack us. I don't have the answers, Lord, and all I can do at this point is trust that you have acted in the past and that I can wait for you to do it again. So what happens for Habakkuk? Because he doesn't get answers. What happens for him is that he becomes certain of a relationship. And that certainty of relationship surprises him with joy. And that joy takes hold of him. So in verses 17 through 19, he essentially describes what is going to happen. It's going to be a total economic collapse. That the fig tree is not going to blossom. There's going to be no fruit on the vine. The produce of the olive will fail. The fields yield no food. The flock cut off from the fold. No herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. In the face of total economic and agricultural collapse, in the face of potential starvation, he says, I will rejoice. Even though all of that might happen, even though what is bad may get worse, I will rejoice in the Lord. How can he say that? I read one commentator on this book named Donald Gowan, and he said, you know, I've thought about putting that passage up, yet I will rejoice in the Lord on, in a cross-stitch or a banner in my office of some kind. But he said, I thought better about it. Because somehow putting it in that place makes it sort of trite. As if saying it can somehow confirm that it's true. What Habakkuk is experiencing is something that has come from deep within. It's still in that wordless place, but he says, I know something now, and I'm going to trust in that something. What I know now is that even though everything else might be taken from me, there are things that cannot be taken from me, and the primary thing that cannot be taken from me is the thing that fosters joy, and that is the steadfast love of God. Babylon cannot rip me off in that way. It's why Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be seen by all. The Lord is near. And then calls us away from anxiety and to a place of prayer. He can say that because joy comes from the knowledge that God is near. Joy comes when we can rest in that place of of gentleness because we can release our death grip on trying to hold on to what we know and what we believe and trying to argue for it and release that into the gentleness of the assurance that God is holding on to us, that the Lord is near. My family and I, um, for the last five years, we have been... um, uh, guide dog puppy raisers for guide dogs for the blind, which is uh, this wonderful job, actually, um, if you like dogs, obviously, and you like puppies, um, where you get a dog at eight weeks and you keep that dog for a year and you socialize that dog and then you send them back to uh, boring Oregon for training. Um, boring because there are no distractions there, I believe. Um, but uh, the dogs go back for training and then 
you know, at the end of that, you present them to a blind person after they graduate. That's if they graduate. Only about 50% of the dogs graduate. And we are 0 for 4. (laughs) Darn. Um, But what I want to tell you about is something that we learned in in training these dogs. And and I realize the metaphor may not work uh, for people, but I, I think it does. We learned something early on about establishing trust with the dog. And part of establishing trust with the dog is, is knowing who the pack leader is, knowing who's in charge. And we do something called a layover where we just put them on their sides. And if they're, if they're squirming and struggling and wanting to get up, which puppies do, we just apply very gentle pressure on them and pet them and, you know, say good girl or good boy and, and wait until they relax into that hold and, and then remove our hands and say, okay, and they jump up and they come to us and they're all happy. Initially, they resist. Initially, they go to this place where they feel like they're being constrained in a way that's dangerous. But when they know that they are being held by one who wants to hold them and care for them, they relax right into it. When we know we're being held, we relax into that and that is the fountainhead of joy and gentleness. Joy is the result of an assurance of a relationship, and so joy sneaks up on us. Joy captures us in that moment where we understand we're being held in a, in a way that, that we've never been held before. And so joy sneaks up on Habakkuk at this point. It, it surprises him, and, and it doesn't surprise him with an answer to his question, but with the assurance of a relationship, because what it does is it sets his life, even in this moment of despair, into a much bigger context than he could ever imagine. A little over 20 years ago, a man in the first church that I served uh, gave me this book by Viktor Frankl, uh, Man's Search for Meaning. It's a phenomenal book. Uh, Frankl was an Austrian Jewish psychiatrist who was captured uh, and sent to one of the camps by the Nazis, and actually he's was in several camps during the war, but he, he ended up surviving Auschwitz and was there when the camp was liberated. And, and this book details his experience there and, and what came out of it. What's just as important as the book is the man who gave it to me, a, a German doctor in the congregation who immigrated to the, to the U.S. in 1957 to start his practice, but who as a 17-year-old in the final stages of World War II was pressed into service in the German army and, and was captured and, and served out the rest of the war as a, as a prisoner of war. He gave me this book, and, and him giving me this book made me want to read it all the more. But what Frankel tells us and what he shows us is that the way he was able to sustain life in those camps where there was no source of hope in any of the circumstances that they faced is essentially that what aids a person in that moment who has nothing more to expect from life to survive, what, what enables that person who has come to the point of, of knowing that life is not going to give him anything, what enables him to survive is somehow connecting with the truth that life still expects something from him. 
that someone or something still wants him or her to be engaged in life. What enables survival is the knowledge that life is set in a bigger context than the one that we can create for ourselves. And it's holding on to the truth of that context that enabled Frankl and others, he believes, to survive. Because that bigger context was something that the Nazis couldn't touch. And so he says in his book, a few days after liberation, he has this experience where he says, One day, a few days after the liberation, I walked through the country past flowering meadows for miles and miles toward the market town near the camp. Larks rose to the sky and I could hear their joyous song. There was no one to be seen for miles around. There was nothing but the wide earth and sky and the lark's jubilation and the freedom of space. I stopped, looked around, and up to the sky, and then I went down on my knees. At that moment, there was very little I knew of myself or of the world. I had but one sentence in mind, always the same. And here he quotes from the Psalms. I called to the Lord from my narrow prison, and he answered me in the freedom of space. How long I knelt there and repeated this sentence memory can no longer recall, but I know that on that day, in that hour, my new life started. Step for step I progressed until I again became a human being. probably in a state of being in skin and bones and on the verge of death himself, Viktor Frankl was surprised by joy because he knew he belonged to something bigger than those circumstances. You know, we talk about joy sometimes as if it's happiness. It's not. Happiness is something we pursue. Happiness is something that we try to attain either through the people that we surround ourselves with, the things that we might accumulate, the settings in which we put ourselves. We try to make ourselves happy through those kinds of things. But joy is not something we can manufacture. Joy is something that is granted. Joy is something that sneaks up on us and grabs us and sounds like a deep and resonant chord somewhere deep in our gut because what we know at that moment is that we have more than ourselves, that we have God. There is a lot that Habakkuk doesn't know by the time this book ends. There's a lot that we don't know. We don't know how long grief over injustice or evil or suffering will last. But one way to face that not knowing is to step back and to look at what we do know. St. Paul, when he was dealing with a congregation at Corinth who wanted lots of answers and needed them from him right away, decided right up front in his book to say, you know, I decided to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We don't know a lot. But what do we know? Well, Paul's answer is a great place to start. For what we do know is the crucified, resurrected, ascended Jesus Christ. 
What we do know is the Christ who has entered into our world and into our suffering and knows every single sting of pain that could possibly pass through our hearts because he joined with us in that pain. What we do know is also the one who rose and ascended and the one, therefore, who can unequivocally tell us that suffering and just and injustice do not have the last word. What we do know is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And what we know is what he tells us. That in the world we may have trouble, he says. In the world you may have trouble. Actually, I think he says, in the world you will have trouble. But be of good courage, for I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Help us to hold on to the last word as we live in the tension of not yet seeing it. And we pray this, Lord, in the name of Jesus who has given us all of the abundance we could ask for or even imagine. So help us now in gratitude to give out of that abundance, we pray. In his name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.